welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. Well, you have your Bibles. Let's look here at 2 Peter. And I want to try to tie the two messages from last week or the message from last week into this message as well uh, without really re-preaching it. Uh, but one thing I want to leave you with here as we look in 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. One thing we want to note in this passage as we seek to tie this message and last Sunday's message together uh, was the life of just Lot. Lot is a man that at some point in his life espoused the truths of God. And as such, to put it in our vernacular, he is one that came to be a believer. He was reared and raised in the Ur of the Chaldees, the same place that Abraham was from. He had the same genetic material as Abraham has, but he called on the same God that Abraham had called on and came to that saving knowledge. And he walks with Abraham for a short while, but then after Abraham goes down to Egypt, there in Genesis chapter 13 that we'll get to in just a moment, you'll find that he and Lot go separate ways. And with the exception of one other time, which happens in chapter 14, the scripture mentions no other times in which their paths cross. And seemingly they had went, and how sad that must have been. You think of having uh, close folks to you, family members, and where the word of God and adherence to it calls such division within the family. Uh, that's a sad time to experience, and I know that many Christians, and perhaps even some here this evening, have been in that particular situation, uh, where your desire to walk with the God of your salvation and to be obedient, not that you're perfect, uh, not that you have all the answers, but your desire to please God and to walk with Him, uh, creates uh, a level of division between those of your own family that do not desire that same truth. Uh, and of course, that's not unique to you. I'll remind us in the gospel, the Lord said, say not that I'm come to bring peace. And he begins to talk about he's come uh, to bring rather the opposite. He's come to bring some trouble in the fact that uh, father will turn against son and mother against daughter. Uh, that's a terrible consideration. And not that that was objectively God's ultimate will, but in his foreknowledge, knowing the depravity of the human heart. Yeah, your salvation is not tied to your genetics. I wish that could be the case. I wish it could be the case that once old granddaddy came to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, that decision he made had somehow cemented it in the life of those that would come from him meaning that his children and his children's children would be obedient and submissive and yielded to the same God that he was, all to be the case. But then I'm thankful in some cases that that isn't the case. And the reason why is I think of a number of grandpas and great-grandfathers that existed many years ago uh, that were out-and-out fools in their attitude towards the things of God. And had the case been such that great-granddaddy made a decision that cemented your future decisions... If he did not make a godly decision, then that would mean that your life was doomed. And so I thank God for the grace that is bestowed upon us, that individually a single entity, a person, must by faith make the decision for themselves as to faith in Christ Jesus. And that's a wonderful, treasured thought. But yet it saddens our heart to know that there can be those that are close to us that will not walk after the counsel of the godly, 
but rather being influenced by the God of this world, we'll turn from their creator unto every evil work. And in betwixt those two individuals, that one that is godly and following Christ and that one that has rejected Christ, in between is a vast array. Oftentimes it's the case that I suppose most of us at one point or another have had the opportunity to meet someone, not unlike Lot. It started out with a faith and trust in the Almighty God and walking with Him, only to get down the path a little bit and turn aside. We spent some time last week and I highlighted, I guess, no less than a half a dozen individuals that had made the same decision or similar decisions that Lot had, that they had turned aside. And sometimes it was something that occurred to their life. I think First uh, Timothy chapter 5 comes to mind. Or they had just ceased in their responsibilities to fellowship with their almighty God and as such had given a place in their life to the evil one and had begun to bring about all matter of sin in their life. The same thing is true in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, where we're admonished to take heed how we care for our bodies uh, and know that there's a consideration that we must have for morality in them. We might would think of Demas in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and there's a whole host of them that is present. Yea, even in the lives of some of the kings of Judah in the Old Testament, you find individuals that for a space of time really were the example to many of an individual that was walking with God. Yet through circumstances it would seem that they would turn their face from the presence of God or cool, maybe we would say, in their zeal for the things of God. I think in some regards you might would see Hezekiah in that regard. In the first years of his reign upon the throne of his father David, he was a man that walked in the counsel of God. He was an upright man. And you'll remember the prophet came unto him, and the prophet prophesied by the word of God that Hezekiah was to prepare his house because God was going to take his life from him. And Hezekiah turned, he and the men of Israel, and they lifted up their voices and cried against the walls. And as it was, such penitence, such submission, such hope, such faith, that God recanted as it were for a moment. God allowed Hezekiah to experience another 15 years upon the face of the earth. And of course, I don't know how I would have responded, but I can tell you how Hezekiah responded. Those last 15 years were far cooler spiritually than the previous years were. It was in those 15 years that he begat one of the most wicked kings of all of Judah named Manasseh. It makes one wonder if really he prayed for the best choice as it pertained for the will of God. And so that's a sad thing to consider. It's a sad thing to consider all of the uh, kings of Judah and their lack of consistency. It seems just as soon as you have a good king, it's followed up by a bad king. And scarcely do you have two and three generations of kings with the same fervor and zeal to please God in a consecutive row. Yet, looking at the northern Israel, it's an easy thing to consider the kings just constantly got worse and worse and worse and never even seemed in their mind to bother them of their spiritual decline. For they had not a spiritual bone in them, I'm certain. But here in Second Peter, we're related once again about Lot. And Lot's a just man, being declared so as by God, and that's the same way you and I are declared, just. And yet he's vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. Their behavior had brought such a weariness to his heart, in so much that it was a toil and torment to him. 
And yet when the last words are mentioned of Lot, with the exception of this passage that we'll see in Genesis chapter 19, when the end fairly comes for him and he's to never be heard again, Lot's life and actions really are the actions that even the world in that day would have frowned upon. How much so that here's a man that walked with a friend of God but ended in one of the worst gutters that any individual could ever be. That truly is the mark of spiritual decline. Look over in Luke chapter 17. I'm not going to deal with this in detail, but I think it would be wise just to set the tone. Just to really set the tone, if you will. Luke chapter 17. And I want you to pause there just for a couple of verses. This is a parallel passage that the Lord preached. We would not call it the Sermon on the Mount. We would call it the Sermon on the Mount of Olives or the Olivet Discourse. You would find its parallel passages in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 24 and 25. And there's a lot of eschatological implications, things to come. And I would have you notice Lot is mentioned. In fact, some of Lot's family is mentioned. Look your eyes in verse 26 and just back up so we can have some context. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. Oh, how was it in the days of Noah? Verse 27, they did eat and they drank. They married wives. They were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. I want to pause just for a moment, make a brief comment on that, not directly tied, just a passing comment. I would like to know that when God sent judgment through the great flood, and there's a parallel here with the end times, the tribulational period, things did not get better before God's judgment comes. I listened recently to a, third, a man, he's, he is a, a very well-esteemed post-millennialist. The post-millennialist does not hold to the, the doctrine of the tribulational period. They do not hold to the doctrine of the rapture. They believe all of that is already fulfilled. It was fulfilled around 70 A.D. And rather they believe in the coming of God to establish the millennial kingdom. That's why they're post-millennialist. They believe the next mark on the time calendar is the Lord coming to establish His literal thousand-year reign upon earth. Now, while I believe that God is going to come and establish His thousand-year reign, the reality of a post-millennialist is we're going to have enough preaching of the gospel and enough of an example of the believers' lives and enough labor, and the world over will be evangelized, and the world over by large is going to turn to the presence of God, and things will come to be better than they've ever been before. You know what you call that? Someone that has not read human history. You think of here the example that the Lord gives as it was in the days of Noah. Did things get better before they got worse? No. In fact, in this verse gives us a good insight, the time of Noah, that you have individuals that really do not care at all for morality, for truth, and really were not terribly concerned with Noah at all. He was simply just a crazy religious zealot that was out doing what God told him and they left him alone as they could 
and let him do his thing and they did theirs. There was no nirvana coming. But when the windows of heaven open and judgment fail, they all knew who was safe in the ark. He goes on and gives a second example in verse 28. Likewise also as it was in the days of Lot. Here's two examples. Noah is something of the example of the nation of Israel that went through the tribulation with safety on the other side, their existence. Uh, They were the only ones to safely navigate, if I can put it in that sense, navigate all of the judgment of God. They were the only ones to be safe from the first drop to the last drop. These people that were within that ark. And that's a picture in type of the nation of Israel. Yes, there'll be a great purging and a great refiner's fire. And there'll be many of the Jew that will pay the ultimate sacrifice for faith in Jesus Christ. And there'll be great catastrophic death during those seven years of tribulation. But at the end, the nation of Israel, through and despite Satan's uh, ultimate fire and ultimate judgment against them, they will prevail. God will save them. But you and I are not part of that picture of Noah. We're not going through the tribulation. Note here this other one. Likewise, also as it was in the days of Lot. But what do you know about the days of Lot? Who's the they? It's the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah. They did eat. They drank. They bought. They sold. They planted. They builded. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, what happened? Lot's a picture of the saints of God preceding God's judgment. He delivered them. But notice... If you will, verse 32. What's he say? Remember Lot's wife. Here's a lady that walked with a just man. Here's a lady that gave birth to his children. Here's a lady that shared the hearth as it was in home with him. Here's someone that, as we might would say in our thinking, knew his heart. Here's someone that had prestige with him for, we'll see in a little bit, that Lot sat in the gates of Sodom. Here's someone that shared wealth with him. But here's someone that did not put faith in the same person and work of the Almighty God as he did. And Lot, in one sense, the picture of the group of believers that will be present on the face of the earth prior to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to rapture his saints. There's not much difference in Lot as there is Lot's wife and actions. In fact, I will say this and I will try to temper this. It was not Lot's wife that offered their clean daughters to the wicked hands of Sodom. That was Lot that did that. In some sense, you might would accuse that Lot had worse morality than his wife did. There was only one notable difference. In the eyes of God, Lot was a just man. Certainly not of works of righteousness, which he has done. But according to God's mercy, had he saved Lot. But Lot's behavior is anything but a shining testimony or a light that's shining in a crooked and perverse nature. Remember Lot's wife. 
Here's someone consumed with all the substance of life. I would hearken back to verse 33. Whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it. Whosoever shall lose his life to preserve it. It goes back in the previous verses in verse number 31 and following. In that day, he which shall be upon the housetop and his stuff in the house, let him not come down and take it. And he that is in the field, let him not return uh, or or, uh, likewise not return back. Hear this prophecy about the judgment coming down upon all that is to be held. And here's Lot's wife. Judgment's falling. She wanted to go back and care more for the things of this world. It's the only true distinction from them. In 2 Timothy, we're told that in the last days, there'll be a great falling away. That's 2 Timothy chapter 2. Timothy, he tells us that this falling away, that they'll heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, who will consent not to the wholesome things of the Word of God. One of the marks of the end times will be a, a society, as it were, of religious people And they may attend Baptist churches or Bible churches or other churches. I know not. But what I am saying is, as a wholesome thing, they don't desire the truths of the Word of God. And their decline will be so perceivable that they'll not resemble the type of Christian anywhere found in the Word of God. That's what Lot is a picture of. And so tonight, with the time we have, look over in Genesis, and I just want to give you a few tonight Lessons to be learned from Lot's wife, or rather Lot's life. Lessons to be learned from Lot's life. As you're turning there to Genesis, I mentioned a moment ago, Genesis 19, the end of Lot's mention in scriptures there as he becomes the father of Ammon and Moab. And it comes to quite an interest that the last two actions that really Lot would be part of, one of them would be drunkenness. And that Hebrew word's interesting. It's the same word that's found throughout the Word of God. It's, it, it has the idea of irrigation. Uh, and he became so ingesting of alcoholic beverages, he had no clue of what was going on at all. It seems to me that when we consider that, we ought to remind ourselves of the folly of alcohol. Many a foolish thing has been done under the guise of a party, under the guise of a good time that is ended in an awful travesty of life. I realize there are those that talk about social drinking and there are those that would talk about drunkenness and make a divisive thing or a divisive thing as it were, divide the two asunder. But no good thing ever comes out of ingesting something in your body that's cataclysmically going to change the ability for you to process logic in your mind. Proverbs chapter 30, Lemuel, uh, Solomon's mother, gave him some wisdom. She said, give strong drink to that man that's about to die. You know what she's saying? He's the one that needs to have his mind calmed for he's about to die. There's no good that ever comes of imbibing an alcohol all the while hoping for good. But here's Lot, a man no doubt overcome with loss. He's a man that goes into Sodom wealthy and a man that comes out of Sodom Sodom completely broken. He's a man that goes into Sodom single and he's a man that leaves Sodom almost completely single. 
He's lost children that died in the, in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember, he had married children that lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. They did not make it out. They perished in their own sin. He has a wife that dies outside the gates. Here is a man that is in great vexation of soul. And of his own free volition, he turns to one of the oldest sins in the world of drunkenness. That word drinking that is mentioned in Genesis chapter 19, it's the same word that's used later in Genesis chapter 24 as Rebecca watered camel. I'll give you a good picture of what he was doing. This is not a fellow that took a sip. This is a man that swallowed the gallon. And by the way, in biblical times, it's about the only way you could get drunk was consuming an abundance of alcohol. They did not have some of the scientific, quote-unquote, advancements that exist today. There wasn't high-proof alcohol available. There was not refrigeration and distillation available. He took of that soured fruit and drank and drank and drank and drank and drank until he didn't know up from down and light from darkness. And as a result of those choices, he would father Adam and Moab. And just to remind you of Ammon and Moab, these two nations that would be distantly related uh, to the people of the Jews were some of their worst enemies and persecutors. As such, they will be a constant thorn in the flesh of the promised son Isaac's children and that God would again and again pass judgment upon them. Ultimately, in Zephaniah chapter 2, you'll read this, Therefore, as I live, saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Surely Moab shall be as Sodom, and the children of Ammon as Gomorrah. And he speaks of their lands as one that will be breeding nettles and salt pits and in perpetual, in perpetual desolation. Now, that's the last time you'll really find of Ammon and Moab. God never forget how they were commenced, and their judgment would be like that unto the cities that commenced them. That would be their end. Lot's lasting legacy was a complete blight upon believing people. I speak in this wise that any Christian that's in spiritual decline is often and always a continual blight upon the people of God. One of the most difficult things in all my years, one of the most difficult things as you go out and you try to win people uh, to the truths of the Word of God as you try to tell them about the Savior, one of the biggest hurdles that has ever been faced is the fact that they met some deacon or Sunday school teacher or preacher or missionary or whatever the case is that lived a wicked life. That is a bigger hurdle to overcome than the fact that they don't understand the Word of Truth. And the fact in our society, they only need to open a newspaper or pull up a Facebook page or look online somewhere and there is a whole number of believers that at once had a passion and a truthful zeal for the things of God only now are recovering from the truths that they once learned. They're a blight and a sustain upon true believers. Let me give you a few things to observe from Lot's life. I want you to notice in Genesis chapter number 13. No, back that up a chapter, Genesis chapter 12. Note verse number 1. Now the Lord had said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house into a land that I will show thee. I'll make of thee a great nation. 
I'll bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. And Abram departed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him. And Lot went with him. Mark it down in your Bible. Lot went with him. In verse 5 you have the fact that Abraham took Sarai. And Lot, his brother's son, and all their substance, they had gathered all the souls that they had gotten in Haran, and they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, into the land of Canaan they came. That's a step of faith. Lot in this passage reminds me a little bit of Ruth over in the Old Testament book of Ruth. Thy people shall be my people, she said to Naomi, and thy God shall be my God. Where you go, I'm going to go. I'm ready to turn my back on all the evil here. Ironically, Ruth was called the... Do you remember? She's a Moabitess. I'm ready to turn my back on all of these people. And I'll only walk according to the faith that is in the Jehovah God of Israel. Lot sounds a little bit like that. He sees here Abraham. Not a perfect man, but a good man, an upright man, a just man. A man with the moniker that God would give the friend of God. And he sees in Abraham a picture of faith. And so is the New Testament principle. He follows Abraham's faith. Let me say there's nothing wrong with following the faith of the godly. We live in a society that proclaims its uniqueness. We live in a society that proclaims its individuality. Sometimes one of the best things that you can ever do in life is hitch your wagon to people that are following the truths of the word of God. That's the whole matter of 2 Timothy chapter 2. The same commit thou to faithful men who shall what? Teach others also. That's the same matter of truth of 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12. Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example unto the believer. Let your life so be consistent that someone that did not know of all the depth of the Word of God and all of the truths of the Word of God could take it face value, your faith in Jesus Christ, and if we can use this proverbial expression, hitch their wagon and hope to the faith that you have. That they could learn from you the truths of the Word of God. That's exactly what Lot does here. He has a step of faith. But here's our first lesson about Lot. A step of faith is not the same thing as a life of faith. There is a remarkable difference between a step of faith and a life of faith. If there is going to be a continual walk with God, it requires diligent daily sacrifices. No one will ever have a life of faith without cost. There's no cheap way to follow God. There's no easy way to be one that consistently walks in truth. There is a cost to following God. And it's expensive. And there are many hardships. And even in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul sums it up to Timothy. He says, endure hardness as a what? Good soldier of Jesus Christ. That's not really an attractive battle cry, is it? That doesn't really in our hearts say, wow, that makes me want to follow God, endure hardness. I thought at the moment of salvation, everything was going to be hunky-dory and everything was going to be happy and it was just going to be laughing all the time in goodness to God. 
Now, to walk with God requires sacrifice. Look at Abraham's life. Abraham is a life of sacrifice. Because he was going to follow God, it required the sacrifice of waiting. And waiting, he did. God tells him that he's going to be a great nation. In order for Abraham to be a great nation, what biological thing has to occur? He has to have a son of promise. But year after year after year after year after year, it would come and go, and now his wife Sarah, in her mind, is beyond the years of having children. What's old Abraham doing? Waiting. Waiting. That's one of the greatest lessons a Christian can ever learn how to do, is wait on God. It's easy to spell. It's easy to say, but it is a very difficult thing to observe in life. James put it this way in James chapter 1. Let patience have her perfect work. That's why we don't like patience. It wears us out. Patience will wear you out quicker than physical labor could ever think of. Patience will affect your mind, body, and soul. Patience is a great place to overcome the temptation that the evil one pass upon you. When we're busy, as it were, towards the things of God, we often, there's certain temptations that don't come. on. Well, think about it. But you get in that moment where you're waiting on the presence of God. You must walk with Him and trust Him every moment for the adversary will press sore against you. Lot paid the price early in his life. He's willing to go with Abraham. He was willing to make that consideration. In fact, he goes with him to Canaan. That's revealed in verse number 5. And then as you keep reading down through the narrative of chapter 13, you find out that he goes down to Egypt with him. And then you read down to chapter 13, or or, or into chapter 12, it goes down to Egypt. Beginning of chapter 13, um, verse number 3, I believe it is, 4, he's coming up out of Egypt with him. What do you find here? Here's a man that's a man of faith. Step by step. But then one day he makes a cataclysmic decision. He decided not to finish the course. The reality, a lesson to be learned from Lot's life is a step of faith is not the same thing as a life of faith. We have a responsibility in our Christian life to finish the course that is set before us. We have a responsibility to watch in all things to endure afflictions, to make foolproof the ministry and calling that God has given to us. That's 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verses 5 through 8. A lesson from Lot's life, a step of faith is not the same thing as a life of faith. Many Christians make that understanding. You'll ask them about how they're following God and they'll talk about their salvation. And I'm glad they're saved. But there's a remarkable difference between being saved and being in the very image of Jesus Christ. Lot did not have a life of faith. Notice the second thing. We're in chapter number 13. In chapter number 13, they've come out of Egypt. They have great cattle. And notice verse 7. And there was a strife between the herdmen of Abraham's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle. And the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled in the land. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? Here's two men that are both saying they're following God. 
And yet there's such strife that is present. That strikes me as something of an interest. Why is strife present? Anywhere else you look about the life of Abraham, there's no strife. In fact, the very next chapter is, I mean, just if you, if you want to practice up on your biblical pronunciation of names, read chapter 14. The five kings, the war of the kings. And it's almost as a parenthetical, though historical activity that God pushes between chapter 13 and 50. There's a reason. In chapter 14, there's kings that descend upon the plains of Jordan and they take captive a series of kings and there's a war. The kings of Sodom and Gomorrah are defeated and dear old Lot's taken up in all this mess. Not Abraham, but Lot. Abraham was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. But no other place the life of Lot is their strife mentioned. He's always dealing with individuals. The Perizzite and the Canaanite were always in the land. Abraham doesn't have strife with them. When Sarah dies, he goes to buy a field and they wanted to give the field to him. That doesn't sound like something you do to somebody that's at constant strife with you. And Abraham rejects it. He said, no, you'll not say that you've made Abraham rich. And he buys the field where Sarah would bury In chapter 14, he takes his armed soldiers and goes to rescue his wayward brother. That's what it's called. It's his nephew Lot. He goes to rescue him, brings him back. And the king of Sodom and Gomorrah says, Hey, why don't you let us have all the people and you keep all the herd and all the wealth? And he said, No, you keep it all. I don't want to take one shoe latchet lest you think you've made me rich. Then why in the world did the herdsmen of Abraham and the herdsmen of Lot have strife. I submit to you there's only one single thing that's different. You got a carnal believer named Lot. You see, Lot's a man that's not walking by faith. Abraham is a man that's walking by faith. Abraham is a magnanimous man. Abraham's a generous man. Abraham's willing to give God whatever cost him most. A few chapters later, there's going to be that blessed son named Isaac that comes. This is his only son of promise by Sarah. And what is God going to say about that? Give me thy son Isaac, thine only son. What's Abraham's decision? Done. Does that sound like a man, a man willing to sacrifice to God the most valuable possession in all of his house, that thing that he's waited decades for, and he's willing to give it to God and have no way to replace it? You think he's really in agreement that you'd be upset over a couple head of cow? That makes sense. Do you think Abraham did not value Isaac more than some cattle? I submit to you where the strife came. He's trying to do business with a carnal brother. And it's exposed if you keep reading. So let's do that. Abraham said unto Lot, let there be no strife, I pray thee, between, interesting phrase, me and thee, between thy herdmen 
uh, my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we be brethren. One of the most sickening things I think of the presence of the mind of God is when believers cannot get along. I digress. Move on. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou will take the left hand, I'll go to the right. If thou depart to the right hand, I'll go to the left. Now notice, generous Abraham, you go first. Verse 10, and Lot lifted up his eyes. And what's the word? Beheld. Here's a second lesson you learn from the life of Lot. You learn that a look of longing can easily alter our path. He looked. Let me say kind of a sub point from this. There's always a different choice that can be made. When I first, I guess, recounted this was recounted to me, I was a little fellow in Sunday school, and not to, I'm not disparaging the Sunday school teachers at all, but I'm telling you how a childlike mind works. I always felt that what it was is left and right, that it was a binary choice, that if Lot went this way, then there was only one place Abraham could go. And in my little curious mind, Lot went left towards the Jordan River. Bethel's here. Jordan would be, I'm sorry, right. Jordan would be to the right hand. So he's just, he just went that way. And then that means that Abraham had to go the other way. And I always thought, what would have happened if it was Abraham's choice? What would have happened if Lot said, well, I'll go left? Then would that have naturally meant that Abraham had to be pitching his tent towards Sodom? Because that would have been right. There was another choice that could be made. Draw, draw your eyes down. In verse 14, it's just what Abraham does, and it's not what Lot does. Lot's at a point, and Lot looks, and what's he look at? Look at those plains. Look at that grass. Look at that savanna. If I'm wealthy now, do you know how wealthy I'll be over here? This is definitely where I'm going, sucker. You should have picked first. Lot's where all that contention came. He's about to take a longing look, something he sees with his eyes that is going to cause covetousness in his heart. By the way, this is the same phrase. First time you'll find the idea of somebody looking with longing is Genesis chapter 3 when the woman saw the tree that it was good to eat. A tree that she knew was forbidden of God. She looked with longing and it was about to alter her path. It's the same thing that happens in Genesis chapter 12 when the princes of Pharaoh longed after Sarah. It's the same longing that's going to occur by Elimelech or Abimelech in Genesis chapter 26 and verse 8 when he'll look and he'll long after Rebekah. And by the way, Abimelech and Pharaoh have judgment placed upon them by the Almighty God. It's the same phrase that is used in 2 Samuel chapter 11 when David, when he should have been where God wanted him, went onto a rooftop and beheld something as well. Not every connotation in the scripture uh, is this word negative, but so often it is. Why? It's a look of longing, of wanting something, something beyond the scope of what God wants for you. 
No, Lot did not have a binary choice. There were other God-pleasing possibilities that were present. He just simply looked in the direction he wanted to be. Notice, if you will, in the Scriptures, in verse 14, And the Lord said unto Abraham, After that Lot was separated from him, Lift up thou thine eyes, Abraham. Look from the place where thou art. He's at Bethel, where he had built an altar before he went down to Egypt. When he came out of Egypt, that's where he's went. Look what he tells him to do. Look northward. Look southward. Look eastward. Look westward. For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. And I will make of thy seed the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall my seed also be numbered. Arise, walk through the land in the length of it, and in the breadth of it, and I will give it to thee. And Abraham removed his tent and came to the dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and built there an altar to the Lord. It answered my question. Wasn't a binary choice. It wasn't Sodom or bust. Look at what God has promised Abraham. He said, I will make of thy seed. There's no Isaac yet. There's no Isaac. God said, yes, the grass here may not be as green as it is over there, but I'm going to promise you, I'll provide here. Abraham, not only to thy son Isaac, but in verse 16, there's the promise of a great nation. That means to his descendants after him, this land will sustain you. Yes, it's not the plains over here of the land, but I'll sustain thee. You see, Abraham could look for a city. Abraham could walk by faith. Abraham could rely on the Almighty God and see the problem that occurs when sight, physical sight, directs our steps. Lots of lesson that is learned of one that allows the look of longing to alter our path. Let me give one more and I'll pick on this on a different note. The third one I'll give you this evening quickly. We won't finish here, but I'll give this for you for consideration. Lot's one whose life gives the lesson of a walking with the wicked and how it promotes wicked choices. Psalm 1 warns about the ungodly, how they do not stand in the presence of sinners. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 6, The admonition of sinners entice thee, consent thou not. The consideration of 2 Samuel chapter 13, that Amnon had a friend, and that the wisdom that that friend gave him cost him his very life. The truths of Galatians chapter 5, that a little leaven, leaven of the whole lump. The truth of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 33, that evil communications corrupt good manners. I give you this litany of verses to remind you that if we needed a human example of how wicked, walking with wicked and evil individuals can produce and will produce wicked choices in your life, lots the example of that. The best years of Lot's life was when he was walking with the godly. What's interesting is this. 
to my study, when Lot goes with Abraham, there's no mention of Lot's wife. When they arrive in Egypt, there's no mention of Lot's wife. When they come out of Egypt, there's no mention of Lot's wife. When they leave from Bethel and he goes to the plains, Genesis chapter 13, there's no mention of Lot's wife. But in chapter 14, that's the first time she's mentioned. You see, a fellow went over there and he got to him a gal. No wonder a few chapters later, Abraham's an old man and he needs him a wife for his son. You remember what he told the chief steward to do? He said, don't get one of these gals from around here. Go back to the land of my fathers and find me one of those gals. Pledge to me that you won't bring one of these heathens. And likely old Limelech took of, or Eliezer rather, took of all the cattle and the trains and went all the way back, hardly knowing what he was doing. Come up to a well, prayed, God, do such and such for me. And there he met old fair Rebecca. There's a great danger. I submit to you, Lot's an example of one that engaged himself with godless people and paid an ultimate price. He's a lesson on massive spiritual decline in one's life. Let's stand to our feet. Father. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time. 